Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Yancey Strickler. Yancey is the former CEO, co-founder of Kickstarter, and recent author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Yancey, welcome to the podcast. What's up, Eric? Nice to see you. Let's get into the book. Uh, Why this book? And what is the conversation you were trying to create with this book? The book stems from really just like a an, an awakening I experienced through the Kickstarter journey. And, you know, I'm someone, I have a creative background. Like I grew up on a farm in Southwest Virginia and, um, and just read books and always wanted to be a writer. Um, and my path into entrepreneurship was not intentional. Like I was, ran a small record label. I wrote about records for magazines and then made a, made a friend who is also a creative person who'd had the idea for crowdfunding and Kickstarter. This is, this is Perry Chen. And we were so compelled by the power of the idea that even though we very much identified as creative people, we sort of stepped over this gap to like this business side to try to like make a, make a company manifest this idea the way it needed to be manifested. Um, and then it was in doing that and in us becoming successful, Kickstarter becoming successful during that, that I really experienced um, how much influence uh, incentive structures and really expectations of finance have on the outcomes of the decision making of an organization. And, you know, we have been very careful with who uh, we raise money from and we intentionally raise not much money to maintain independence, to maintain founder control. We always saw those things as important. But yeah, we just had this mindset that for us to, to, to maintain independence is the, is the important thing. And so once, once we sort of, uh, Kickstarter was out in the world, I saw it with our competitors raising a lot of funds or seeing the expectations of people who had investors who were maybe a little bit more aggressive, that ultimately all decisions uh, just led back to what will produce the greatest financial return, what will increase your valuation, what will drive growth, and that eventually uh, all decisions sort of windowed down to a small number of metrics that you're trying to grow. And every choice basically laddered back to what is the most profit-maximizing outcome that can be created here. And I experienced it firsthand in, you know, in, in executive team meetings, having debates about what path to take. There's one path that will seem to produce a revenue growth. There's another path that will produce a, a slightly less revenue growth, but will grow something else instead, some employee happiness or maybe customer loyalty. And so you're faced with this dilemma. And nine times out of 10, people are going to choose the one that just has the, fi- the higher revenue outcome. Really, the only time you choose the one where you give up any revenue is like when it's an emergency and you essentially feel like you have to apologize. But like this is sort of the, this litmus test that we're all operating with. And what I felt as a CEO is I, I often felt torn by those things where I, I have the type of personality that's very, uh, I'm very vulnerable to the soft argument you know, I, I'm like, I identify with that, but I'm also like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, my numbers work very well in my mind. So I understand those kinds of outcomes. So you end up in a choice where you feel like here's a rational choice and here is this irrational emotional choice. And I think a lot of what I longed for as a CEO and what I came to feel true is that 
all of these kinds of choices are equally rational. We just simply lack a language to make decisions with confidence, to let us know, like, when are we actually making a values-driven choice or when are we just like making an emotional choice? How can we uh, grow values in a, in a consistent way that we grow money? Like, what does it mean to, to think about your organization that way? Um, and so for Kickstarter, we use like the structural process of becoming a public benefit corporation and writing a charter and sort of binding the company to certain behaviors. But, you know, but the book and the, sort of the larger project I'm thinking about is how, uh, how businesses and really all of us are incentivized to follow this sort of financial litmus test. And to say that there are many areas where that is like a, that makes sense. I think that is a rational way to behave. But there are also areas of our life and areas of our business where other values need to reign, that that's where better choices, more fulfilling, fulfilling our potential uh, exists. And just in our current way of decision-making, we find it hard to make those kinds of choices. You have to be, it's like moral, it's virtuous. And I, I don't think we should want, I don't think we should want it to be like that. It shouldn't be that like making a generous choice is, a, is, tr- is trying to symbolize your wokeness. Uh, we should be that we make those choices because they produce better outcomes and it's demonstrably true. And so I feel like that's the path that we're on from this sort of like feel-good values, desire that, ha- that people have, that that to be turned into more of like a, a rational investment in new forms of growth. And that that's something that we do not out of a political reason or out of a value signaling reason, but we do it because we prove that like that's what produces better outcomes. And so I... I think that's true, and that and that's what the book is about, and that's what, yeah, that's that's what I'm interested in. Uh, and and p- paint a, a vision of the world uh, of what it could look like if your work is a success. If if in the sense of everyone has read the book, internalized the book, it, you know, uh, agrees w- with the book, or some of the the main uh, points about sort of expanding the scope of what of what value is. What could that world look like, or what are, what are some of the differences uh, that could happen as a as a result, or that you'd like to see happen? Well, I think, you know, I have a theory and I'm writing a piece about this right now, but I have a theory that like we think of value and values as being separate concepts. You know, values is like this humanities word. Um, value is like this economics word. And there's, you know, they both are like describing things that are good, things that are important. Uh, but values is more philosophical. Value is is like a number. And you know, I think that this is, this is kind of like a spectrum. I also think this is kind of like a it's kind of like a value stack, where at the root level are like those moral beliefs about values. Sort of a, the layer above that are like sort of the laws and cultural norms that express those values, and on top of that are like the incentives that sort of drive the right outcomes that make sure that everyone's working uh, on the same page. And so, I, I what I imagine changing, what I what I think that the big breakthroughs are. Number one is that really our world right now is based on a short-term individualism as like the dominant paradigm. Like we all believe that we are the most important people in the world that right now is the most important time in the world. Something like COVID-19 is, is really shaking up that belief system, right? Like we now realize we are only as safe as our neighbor. Um, We can imagine we're individuals, but that's like pretending that a pool can have a peeing section and it's, you're still safe, right? Like there's the, you're only as safe as you tell yourself you are. Um, and so this individualism that we've clung to very tightly that I think has dominated the last 50 years, I think that has to, to break down a little bit and that that has to allow us to, to see the importance of our collective needs, uh, to see the importance of not just the near term, but the long term. And I think that 
events are forcing that to happen. COVID-19 is doing that. Climate change is doing that. So if we begin to think that there are real important spaces other than what we want right now, uh, then suddenly I think that we're going to have to try to solve new kinds of questions, which is the kinds of values we know how to grow now tend to be individualistic values that we can, be, that we can own. Money is ownable. Power tends to be ownable. Attention is ownable. These are like very sort of selfish values. But the kind of values I think that we're going to need more of, things like sustainability or fairness or knowledge or the ability to create purpose in your life or even like the, the health, uh, the, the mental health or the physical health of a society, those are not ownable values. Those are sort of collective values that no one can claim total credit for, no one can cash in on, but yet they have enormous impact on all of our lives. To date, we haven't really figured out how to collaborate to create those things the same way that we have producing selfish value. And so I I feel like that what happens is that what we view as as being in our self-interest begins to expand because the world is going to force that to happen. Our perimeter of self-interest will shift outward to include the near future and to include each other. And that once we begin to approach the problems of the near future and each other, we're going to find that our focus just on financial gain, our focus just on accruing power, that those things don't make as much sense and that there are going to be different forms of value and different ways of valuing uh, that will need to drive how we create social value, that will drive how we secure a better future. Uh, and so I think that there's some of these things that are already happening. Uh, probably my, my favorite example, the most utopian example is with Adele, the pop singer Adele, um, who uh, would play a show and her shows would get scalped and fans would have to pay thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars more to get a ticket. Um, instead of allowing the market and price to determine who would see her play, Adele uh, used an algorithm that would approximate how loyal a fan was to her as an artist. Uh, and then that algorithm distributed tickets according to like the top percentile Adele fans in each market. And this was set up so that Adele still satisfied the financial needs of putting on a show. So she didn't lose money, but yet she was optimizing for a collective value of loyalty, of a communal experience on top of that. And because of technology, because we can approximate uh, these kinds of value systems in a way that in the past, those were moral values that you could only debate. But now we can actually sort of mathematically express these things in some instances. We can allow decisions to be made for those reasons instead. And so there, I think you get into what what I think is ultimately we'll call post-capitalism, which is the idea of transactions or goods changing hands where there is a financial minimum being satisfied, but the maximum being sought is another value on top of that. That basically capitalism becomes a platform on which we are building and growing other forms of value. Money is always there. Money is like the oxygen in the air that must be present. But the greatest challenges, the, the, the most interesting breakthroughs will come in the creation of other forms of value uh, on top of that. And so um, I'm, I'm writing another long thing about this now at the moment, but I, I feel like this is the shift that's happening. And, and I think that what it looks like on the other side of it is, is something more like a multivariableism more than capitalism, more than, every, more than our dashboard having just a speedometer. It's a dashboard that has like four things on it. And we, we learn to balance things rather than just push one metric to the red. And what, what is the structural incentive or mechanism by which we start valuing whatever that higher value is? Or what's, uh, how do we change the, the, the dashboard? Well, I don't think that people change willingly. Um, I think people are forced to change. And I think that the change here is, is going to happen just from 
the anomalies of our current system adding up. You know, I, I was very influenced by Thomas Kuhn's um, structure of scientific revolutions, which introduced the idea of a paradigm shift and, and the notion that a certain way of the world will all we'll op- we'll, we'll operate according to a certain way of seeing the world. But eventually there are enough sort of weird things that don't make sense that someone will need to introduce a new theory of the world that allows the things that don't make sense to start making sense. And that this is what's called a paradigm, uh, a new paradigm. But what Kuhn says has to happen is that um, once there is that new idea of how the world could function, the next step is what he calls, quote, normal science, which is people trying to apply this theory to the real world and finding out where it works and where it doesn't. And that's like how a theory becomes law. I think that change happens when the anomalies add up. I think that the fuse has been lit uh, over the past 20 years for uh, the notion of a only profit maximizing society. I mean, we are being hyper successful at this. But when you have moments of millions of people losing their jobs and the market going up 6% the same day, when you have images like the Jim Cramer CNBC mad money shot from last week, it really makes clear um, that this story that if we simply maximize financial value, uh, that it will eventually create broad prosperity and will produce the growth of every other forms of value, that that is no longer a story that people can buy into. Even the notion that democracy and capitalism are these like these co-white knights, that's not a story we can so clearly buy into. And so what we need, what, what is going to have to happen for us to have a constructive move forward, because there's going to be a lot of anger and there's going to be a lot of teeth gnashing and there's going to be a lot of people feeling very defensive of the system as it exists. And what we're going to need is a positive vision to work, work forward to. And, and I believe that I believe that history is yes and, you know, it's like improv. You're just building on the other thing. And so I look at this as the growth of financial capital has been incredibly important. The next step is to use financial capital as a tool to grow other forms of value as well. Uh, But right now we're stuck in this loop where we think that the only valid use of money is to do things that will produce a a return that beats the S&P. And that is the litmus test for what is the good idea or not. And so we're in a place where like, you know, climate change is destroying the globe and yet there is more money than ever. And there's so much money, people don't even know what to do with it. And there is this obvious mismatch here of what we see value as being. Um, and so I think that bad things are going to happen. They're going to force our existing stories. They're going to, they're going to force us to confront the, the falsities of our existing stories. And they're not evil. It's just like, Maybe we made some wrong assumptions early on. Maybe things got more complicated. Like, I don't, I don't view any Ill, Ill will here. Uh, but there just becomes a point where we require a new way of, uh, of seeing the world to just keep moving forward. We need a new narrative. And to me, to me saying that, like, we have amazing capacity to, to produce value for one another, we've just settled on a quite limited notion of what that should be, that we're just in the first inning of this, is like an extremely... Like I buy that story and it's a very positive one because it just says, oh, wow, there's so, there's so much space yeah. for us to keep improving and collaborating. We don't just have to fight for scraps. Like this is just beginning. Yeah. It's interesting. I want to unbundle a couple of things. I wonder how much of the problem is that it's about profit maximization versus that the, the fruits of profit maximization aren't shared in some sense. Uh, and it, it's probably both to some degree, but I wonder how much a little bit. I think that, you know, we, People tend to take private property as sort of sacred or as as given, 
um, or, or as default. And uh, to me, sometimes it seems a little arbitrary. You know, if I have a home in San Francisco and that home uh, appreciates it, and I didn't do anything to it, uh, and I receive all the value, it's unclear why that is. When what made it more valuable, the community, um, or when I contribute uh, data to Facebook or you know some other web, web website, I am you know, contributing to, to that value and yet not receiving the you know, economic gains separate from, you know, the, the, the product itself, which is, which is valuable. And so I wonder, uh, if, if actually, uh, you know, you and Kickstarter, the public benefit stuff, but also the inherent model of Kickstarter, if, if crypto or some other mechanism can improve a more shared, uh, version of capitalism, which is, you know, private property looks a little bit more public in the sense that users, get upside in, in, in the products themselves. And I wonder if, if we, we, if we would all have a more, be more appreciative of private proper of, uh, of profit maximization, if we were all benefiting in the, you know, uh, fr- fruits of that from the fruits of that, that doesn't solve the, the externalities and climate change problem. But I'm, I'm curious how you feel about that because Kickstarter sort of pioneered this a little bit, a little bit. Um, and you could even see, you know, it being taken to the next level where I don't just receive the product early, but I also receive some equity and some upside in that. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. And, you know, I think that the real, the real Holy Grail um, is, is a platform, is, is Facebook where all the users co-own it, right? Where everyone has uh, an equal share, a cooperative. Um, I'm actually an advisor uh, and, on, and on the advisory board of a, of a company called Ampled, um, launching soon, which is a uh, Patreon-like subscription, artist subscription service, but a co-op. Um, where all the users will co-own the platform. And so to be like a project project like that is a kind of holy grail of the web, you know, kind of what we all would hope could happen with this sort of decentralized universe. I, I absolutely agree that pursuing the maximization of profit is like a rational and defensible thing in, in many areas of the economy. Um, one of my like sort of the, the business thinkers that most influenced me is Konosuke Matsushita, who's the creator of Panasonic. And he started, he's Japanese, he started Panasonic when he was like 20 years old and ran it for like 60 years. Um, and he writes beautifully about the importance of a business producing a profit because it shows that it's creating value and it's also its way to pay back to society. Um, so I think, I think that's absolutely true. The, the challenge that we have though, is if you think back to that idea I had of there being a value stack where like at the root level are moral cultural beliefs on top of that are rules and laws. And on top of that are like incentives and metrics. And what's happened as economic value has come to overtake the humanity's moral value is that stack has flipped where the incentives layer, which for us is like money and share price that now drives the rules and the laws Money has accrued so much power that it's used to change the rules and the laws to be in its favor. And those things also are attempts to try to change the morals and the cultural beliefs of society. But whereas normally we imagine the outcomes and the incentives as being like, a, uh, they're, they're like the last, they're the after effect of a process. Here they've become the point of it. And I think that they have acquired a lot of power. So companies that are making profits are not distributing them through taxes back to society. In fact, they're using tax havens. They are rewriting tax laws. Uh, they are you know, doing all sorts of regulatory capture to protect their slice of the pie. And to me, this, this process explains why it is that, say, the market keeps going up as people lose their jobs it's, and why the market has been going up over this whole period, which is that the private sector is getting stronger, the public sector is getting weaker. 
Um, you know, where is all this added like market cap coming from Amazon? It's coming from every other business in America closing down. That's what's getting added to Amazon's market cap at this moment. And so it's what we're seeing is a real shift in power. And so a world where companies are profit maximizing and they are balanced equally with a strong government that knows what it's doing and a strong workforce that knows what it wants to have. Like if those things are all equally pursuing their thing with vigor and meeting at the table as equals and hashing out, I think absolutely that can work. Um, but I think that what we've seen is that uh, our systems are very incentives driven um, the incentives that like we know how to amp the maximize and amplify more the most for right now are like attention and money. Um, I believe incentives are only going to become more important because our systems will become more automated by AI. And at that point, sys you know, automated systems will be driven entirely by metrics. And so the choices they make will be entirely driven by what we define as being valuable goals to work towards. So the world in which we are still expecting attention and money and price and profit to be approximations of goodness and just outcomes, I think is going to get uh, really messy. So there's a part of this that is like destroying the sacred of like, wait, am I saying that we need to like quantify love or something? You know, I don't know. I don't think so. But if we ever get to a point where it's like, hey, machines are making all of our choices for us and love is disappearing in the world. Maybe we need to define like an AI robot kind of way. Here are the three rules of love for the, you know, for the universe. Maybe that happens. Maybe that happens. I think that the history of the past 50 years um, would suggest that getting into the space of defining new sorts of incentives and metrics is, is, um, is actually a quite powerful place to, to affect change. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this conundrum. It's, it's Goodhart's law. You know, any, any metric that you focus on ceases to be a good metric. And it's sort of with this conundrum of, uh, you know, what do they say? Measure what matters. Uh, if, you're, if you're not measuring it, it doesn't matter. But if you measure it, it sort of doesn't matter as much as it, you know, as it would if it, if it isn't measured. It's sort of this, this paradox. Uh, the AI one is, is something I haven't thought about um, in the sense that, you know, we might start, if, if we're having you know, entities make decisions for us based on algorithms, Hey, we have to inform those algorithms better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Because like right now the charge that the challenge of doing something like in an organization, having a vision of what you want to do is, is quite easy. Uh, the hard part is getting human beings to collaborate on that and to, you know, push through all the distractions and hard things that happen every day. There's a million opportunities to deviate from that plan. And so what's, what distinguishes successful companies? Ones that can honestly, ones that can stick to their plans is yeah. like such a big part of it. For an AI-driven process, there will be none of those human issues. And in fact, the greatest issue will be our ability to build in the externalities to approximate the values that are important because the AI is going to be able to shoot the arrow like right to where the target is. Like if it's possible, it will find its way there and we're going to end up finding probably what the real outcomes of what we say is important are. Um, so to me, just this idea of like there's this rational space that's like basically finance. And then there's this irrational sort of humanity space is it is a dangerous, I think it's a dangerous position. And I say this not, you know, again, like totally, totally identifying with Godard's law and not, and not like yeah. want not or Goodwin's law, not wanting, not wanting this on a personal level, but also just, I don't know, being, being quite struck by the power of incentives and just, and also just believing that we're still just scratching our potential. You know, I, I still think that we're just so early in our journey 
and yeah. uh, the recency of all these things, you know, the recency of the internet, all these things, it, it's just, we cannot underestimate it. So yeah. um, as someone who reads a lot of sci-fi, I'm like, this is going to go far farther than we can imagine. So totally. how, how do we put us on that path? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, torn is a strong word, but uh, torn a little bit, I come across your, your, your work and ideas because there are some things which I really resonate with, which is the need to shift from uh, you know, individualism or to embrace a sort of understanding that we are con- you know, far more interconnected than we think. And that is only, that is only growing and, and COVID is making us you know, appreciate that. And, and thus we need to, I, I don't think uh, private property is sacred. I think, I think it, it needs to evolve a little bit to take that in, into account. So I agree with you that the narrative of capitalism needs to needs to evolve, be more collective, and I think we're I think we're on that path. I think we're developing technology such that we can um, we can do that. Particularly, I'm excited about uh, what's happening in crypto. Uh, at the same time, I don't necess- I, I also think that the narratives of democracy and government uh, need to need to evolve too, because I don't think they are working. I, th- I, th- I, I don't think people have confidence in them. And it's reflexive, of course. Um, the less confidence that, the less, the worse it gets. And I, my, my sort of summary, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, is I think private property needs to be more public, uh, that we need to better uh, you know, reflect the value that's being created um, and it needs to be more disseminated. But also, I wonder if the public sector needs to be a bit more private, a bit more market-driven uh, in the sense that there needs to be comp- competition, competitive governance, such that, um, use you know, you know, so implications here. But citizens, uh, I wonder if citizens should be customers of their government in the sense that they get served a good product and there there's competition for them instead of just choosing between sort of Burger King and and McDonald's. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's very. I mean, we're we are we are in a catch twenty two of um, we have low social trust. Um, we have low trust in our institutions. Um, you know, I think some might argue that that low trust in institutions is intentional and is ultimately a way to once again, like support the private, the private sector's um, space. Cause like for me, yeah, I believe in public goods, but yeah, there is the part that's like, wait, but can we trust our public institutions to manage our public goods? Even if I, in theory, like uh, want these things to be shared is is our current infrastructure for what a shared resource is? Does that make any kind of sense? We're in a moment of, you know, this is going to be a period of breakdown. It seems is most likely what's going to happen. I mean, I think that, uh, I think that there is a narrative, there, there is a timeline that could have happened here where for the past 15 years, we were all more supportive of our institutions and they would be very resilient and performing exactly the way that they should. I think a a lot of European and Asian nations, you see states that are being quite reactive, that, that the public does trust them, that they're looking out for the public good, that they are rational and practical and non-ideological. But in the US, we are, we are none of those things. And so it's very difficult because I am, my instincts are to be an institutionalist. I think I, I, like, I like the shared pillars of things. I, I like the notion of uh, uh, of organization structures that last m- multiple generations. I feel like that's a thing you can really trust. Like the people continue to work on this uh, beyond each generation. And, and there's a world where I can imagine like someone describes what the commerce, what, like what the treasury department does and then gives it the name of a startup. And someone's like, that sounds amazing. And you're like, well, that's, yeah, that's already what our government does. You know, this is, this is what we do. To me, uh, what seems to be the path that we're on is just one of further and further breakdown. 
Um, and, and I think more and more systems collapsing. I think that clearly in the COVID case, it's been, uh, tech products, you know, tech platforms have, have really stood out, uh, for lots of, you know, reasons where it's like the home turf of like, it's the only way we can do anything. So it's a little bit unfair to say only they stand out, but, uh, I think that's going to keep happening. And I think that in the near term that might net out with weird things like, you know, Procter and Gamble gives a UBI to like their most loyal customers that use Saran Wrap or something that like, you know, Google will pay for families of, you know, the cost of living for families in the Bay so that they, you know, are trying to balance out their cost of living. You know, you might come up with these really weird private market solutions of people, of companies trying to invest their money to fill in these gaps that maybe there aren't institutions left that can fill that. I mean, I think that's like the night, maybe the nightmare scenario that might, that might happen. But yeah, I think that I think that we're going to have a that we're in an ebb of trust, and and something is going to have to emerge to get that trust. And you know, and and maybe that thing is just maybe that thing is just the network itself. You know, maybe it is just it's the collective consciousness of the internet. It's it's all of us coming together to solve these problems. It's it's the internet as this massive you know brain that like when COVID broke created this message of flatten the curve and communicated that through all parts of the body to get it to listen, which is like a, an amazing thing. Like we kind of can't underestimate how incredible that is, even if that is the easiest part of this crisis. Um, and so maybe that's, maybe that's what emerges as like the new structure, you know, it's just, it's yeah. like a governance through Reddit or something and <laughs> Reddit and, and tokenization. Uh, but I think probably certainly more of the governance platforms of the web will probably uh, lend themselves to the real world. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what Wikipedia IRL um, looks like. Uh, you know, there's things like say liquid democracy, um, which I'm, a, I'm friends with those folks that I think is a fascinating kind of experiment with new governance but yeah, probably more it's like the, the digital goes to the to the physical um, might be the path that it goes down. Yeah. And and what what might that look like? Or you mean sort of the governance structures that govern our digital products will now govern our physical? Yeah, yeah. Possibly maybe maybe we start to think about government as like a, a you know, in like upvoting, downvoting metaphors yeah. and like you know, certain kinds of like, I don't know, maybe social services are served like Google AdWords or something, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe there, I could just imagine, especially if we get to a place where we feel goods need to be d- digitally distributed, that that kind of thing would happen. I mean, the obvious case and the dystopian case is China with having like a, you know, a, a, a social metric uh, to, to, you know, to rate every single member of society um, as like the greatest dystopian example of like what the the digitization of new values uh, and like the internet model being applied to the real world looks like. Uh, yeah. But I don't know. I think it's, I, it just makes sense that that's, that's where the interesting thinkers are going to be. And I, I think that's where we might pull ideas from. Let's talk more about governance and organization structure, because you, you've certainly done your, you know, your experiments at Kickstarter and thought, thought a lot about it. And, you know, on the sort of, you know, the crypto community has sort of wrestled with decentralizing ownership and decentralizing governance. And I think they've experimented with governance and my sort of editorial is they realize it's pretty hard. And so they've sort of put that on pause and gone to the far less controversial thing of, of ownership, uh, which is, hey, if you create value on this platform, you should also capture some of that. And most people are, are down with that. And so, and then put the, the governance thing is on, on pause. And I think what they realize is that 
you know, the more cooks in the kitchen, you know, the more fair it is in some sense, but also the more hard it is to get some stuff done. You know, Singapore isn't run like a co-op, right? Some of these Asian countries aren't, aren't run like co-ops. And so what, what's your, and of course there's different types of governance for different types of situations, but what are some learnings you've had or, or ways that you'd like us to think about this? Yeah, I have a, I, I love this topic. Um, I mean, the, the company I mentioned before, Ampled, they have a lot of people contributing, unpaid contributors. And so they're counting hours and those hours will be converted into, you know, ownership of the Ampled co-op. So, that, you know, I, I, I enjoy trying to do this, uh, people trying to do this. Another, you know, I, I, I advise, um, I work with the Extinction Rebellion, like the environmental activist group, um, and they're a teal uh, organization, um, fully decentralized holacracy. And one of the interesting provisions they have for how they work is that they are, uh, the way they put it is they are post-consensus. Um, the challenge they're working on is so pressing that they cannot wait for member consensus to take action. And so instead, everyone has pre-permission to take an action in the group's name as long as it fulfills like these three or four criteria. So this is a way to try to balance that, like the way you can get stuck in meetings about meetings, which can even happen in a teal holacracy, um, trying to pair that with like a, an imperative to move. I think that leadership is underappreciated. Um, I mean, leaders are maybe overly celebrated, but the challenges of good leadership are tremendous. And like the effect of a good leader is, you know, is unbelievable. And I think the best kind of leaders know how to balance a kind of post-consensus mindset with like a clear vision. So to me, the the ideal organizational structure during my time at Kickstarter, the, the most successful periods are when you have a, a clearly articulated but fairly broad goal. You know, we're trying to get here to this to this place by this date. And then there's a fairly loose organization about how you might get there. But most of the decisions and the and how the path will be taken is is up to the team, and and what you find is that when you have that mix of like here's the destination it's it's going to be hard as hell but we're going to get there somehow let's like we'll work together to 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 find the ideas, uh, then you have people co-authoring uh, that story and then you have people buying in and there's especially as a leader there's there's a lot of tendency to, to dive in, to micromanage, to just input your ideas. And even if you're right, you, you lose something. You lose something every time you do that. You're, you're spending your, your credibility. Um, but managing, you know, balancing that tight but firm, uh, sorry, that, you know, the tight, tight but loose structure is really hard. Um, you know, what I, what I wished for and what I ended up coming up with versions of at Kickstarter was like a, like a physical playbook or like a physical compass that would just tell everyone, hey, every choice we want, we want to sort of satisfy these conditions. Um, since leaving Kickstarter, you know, I, I've developed a tool to do that, which is a simple two by two box that just shows you uh, sort of four spaces to think about when making choices. There's now me in the bottom left, uh, future me in the bottom right, uh, now us in the top left, and future us in the top right. Um, and this simple two by two just allows you to see your footprint for every choice you make, because every choice we make impacts what we want to need right now. It, in, it impacts the person or organization that we want to be. Uh, it impacts the, the people that rely on us, our friends, our coworkers, our employees, and also impacts the, the next generation. Um, but yet today with this like near term individualism, really, we only see this now me space. Um, and so I, you know, I use this framework I call Bento, uh, a Bento framework, 
as a simple compass where you can identify and articulate what your goals and your values are. And if you do this on an organizational level, um, which I'm working with uh, orgs doing that now, then everyone in the company just has the same has the same thing they're looking at. How do I make this choice? Well, it you know it needs to do this for our customers. It needs to fulfill this brand ideal. It needs to fit this near term goal, and it has to fit this longer term vision. And anything any anything that satisfies those four things, you have permission to go do. Like go do it. You know there's there's our post consensus. The the anything that satisfies what is clearly like squarely, uh, you know, what we're trying to do, then go for it. And so I think the ideal structure is where you get that balance of things. Um, and then, and yeah, and then, and then the, 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 the part that still has to be solved that I think co-ops and I also think crypto are a good answer for is, is that backend, you know, cause all the money is made on the backend. Right. And that's, that's where employees get screwed. That's where even like the, the, best user of the platform, who's the reason why it breaks out, how they get sort of left out of how you calculate the value of a platform. Um, so I think co-op is an interesting model for how, how we might think about that in the future. But yeah, I think as a, I think as a CEO, you know, long-term, the answer to every solution is you're going to elevate someone to take responsibility for it. And, and, and the more you can have that mindset and the more that everyone has this mindset of like, here's what's right and wrong. And you know, we, I stick to my area and everybody, everybody's a pro, you know, that that's when orgs have that, like you have that organization, you know, product fit, you know, or you just have that equilibrium of, oh, wow, we have the right mindset to work on the right kind of problems at the exact right moment in our business's life. And that's, you know, that's when magic happens. Totally. I, I want to illustrate another way I was, I was torn a little bit in a sense of, you know, I think some people, when they sort of criticize profit maximization you know, I, sometimes I criticize in the sense of it's it's not sufficiently shared. But I think the only thing worse than a big pie that is not shared is a smaller pie that that is not not shared. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to sort of Tyler Cowen or even Peter Thiel's claims of, hey, one one of our problems is we don't have enough growth or enough uh, innovation. And when, when there isn't enough, then there's a winner for every loser. It's more zero sum. Um, and so I'm I'm trying to figure out how we can do both. And I'm not saying you're you're not, but I'm curious for your take on it. In the sense of continue to grow the pie, do it in a distributed way such that everyone you know benefits from it, and then do it in a sustainable way such that it's you know sympath- you know uh, synergistic with our with our planet. And this leads to extinction rebellion, which you just mentioned, which I feel like so- there's this bigger debate on for us to solve our environmental problems or even approach them. Is it that we have to sort of go back to the way things were, or is the only way out through? And we need to sort of innovate our, our way through it. And I, I get the extinction, my understanding, limited understanding of extinction rebellion is it's more on the conserve side, you know, consume less, spend less versus the sort of like, let's get renewables, let's get nuclear, let's get, you know, fracking, like, let, let's get, let's really innovate our way through it. it. It's like this broader question of, do we need much more of what we've been doing and let's alter it a little bit? Or do we need to like fundamentally rethink it or go back to the, the past. I've sort of thrown a lot at you. How do you react to this? Um, well, I think that, I mean, I think going back to the past is always a myth. I also think it's, I also think it's always a myth that like the next patch will produce the next technological patch will return us to Eden. You know, I feel like we're about 20,000 years, uh, into that journey and, you know, the iPhone didn't do it right. You know, the, the, but I, I am, I am absolutely pro progress. I mean, I think that my, my my answer would say would be that yes we do need more growth but i think that 
we need a broader concept of what growth means. And that, you know, if growth is only financial growth, you know, then what, what is the, what is the end goal of that exactly? Like, I, I get that there's a thought if there's a bigger pie, then all sorts of things will happen. And, you know, maybe Tyler's argument is, well, ultimately money is the simplest thing to work towards. So that's like the best we can do. Um, so, you know, my, my take is like, is it worth having a skunks work team somewhere at least saying, Hey, are there other variables we should be thinking about? Are there other values that we should add to the table? Um, what if uh, financial value is simply the, the first best way we've come to translate a, a moral value into a, a tangible value, but maybe it's not the last one, you know, maybe Bitcoin is the start of like just the enormous bifurcation of value, right? That, that the notion of like value equals one thing that value equals money and now value equals like paper money and then digital money. And then it will get further, further fracture. Um, and maybe that the kind of growth that we're going to uh, need to take on is something more like that. I mean, a lot of, a lot of what the internet has done is it's just sort of like broken things into smaller and smaller subcultures where we just get deeper and deeper. Like that's so much of like the, the growth path of the internet. It's just like incre- in- increasing depth and in everything. I think that we've been following a, 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 an individualistic economic playbook. Um, I can see its arguments. But to me, I think that the challenges uh, that are coming are different. Um, you know, the notion that we can grow our way out of climate change, I think, is um, very unproven. Um, you know, what is proven to affect climate change? Well, it is, you know, it, it is resource explanation is what drives it. You know, the best technology uh, for moving CO2 in the atmosphere that is known to date is plants and the natural environment. You know, so there's a lot of solutions sitting there. Um, but they just don't fit the paradigm that we like to solve problems with right now, which is we want to build shit. You know, we, we want to build something to solve it and, and we want it to be profitable. We're be seeing with PPE now, right? Like it's not profitable enough to make PPE. So we're struggling to solve it. So now we're having to come up with new reasons, you know, new market incentives to try to get people to build those things. Okay. Well, how many times do we do that before maybe we're not in just a place of capitalism anymore? And maybe we have to acknowledge, hey, there's a there's sort of multiple uh, modalities. There's, there's, there's multiple drivers of our financial decision-making. It is not just financial self-interest. It is also this kind of public interest. It's also this kind of health interest. And, you know, do those things have, deserve to have a different pricing model? Do those, are those things fundamentally different kinds of markets? Um, and so I think that, I think that we're just going to run into those things that there will be one mindset that will just want to bulldoze through them. And there'll be another, another type of mindset that will say, hey, is there, is there something here to dig deeper on? And just my, my instinct is that, that probably we're like 80% directionally right. Um, but that you, what I think back to are those moments as a CEO where you have that feeling that something's the right choice. And then you have like every, every metric in front of you telling you there's another choice. And it, it takes takes a lot of personal resolve to do the right thing in that moment. And I've had moments where I have done the right thing in that moment. And I've had moments where I've done the easy thing in that moment. And I don't think that those kinds of choices will ever be easy for a leader. Um, but can they be made less hard? And is it possible? Do we, can we achieve some greater potential as a result of that? So, you know, I, to me, that's, that's, a, that's a shot. That's a shot worth taking. And, and I think that in, in a lot of markets that the companies that distinguish themselves are the companies that have a 
a broader view of their self-interest. It is the Patagonias and the REIs. It's, you know, it's, it's Chick-fil-A still being closed on Sunday. You know, it's, it's, it's the things that stand out in the marketplace are people that sacrifice people that like show that they have a difference in the values that they distinguish themselves. They earn trust. They, they matter more. You know, it's possible to have a hugely successful company that is also functionally meaningless. And, you know, when a big disruption happens to your category, you're going to be the first one to die. You know, the, the, the brands that people care about, um, that people aspire to, that people look to as thought leaders for whatever reasons, those are the ones that are going to have a better shot of surviving. So, you know, there's a lot of self-interested reasons, I think, why this path makes sense. It's just been functionally difficult because there's been no way to measure other forms of value. Like money is just so powerful. And I just think tech is going to change the situation that, you know, the amount of technological development we've done to serve ads to people is amazing. And I can't wait to use it to serve goods, you know, to, to serve, you know, critical goods to people as well. Um, Cause I think that potential is still out there. I think the biggest challenge of our, of our time is, is not only incorporating other values, but agreeing on what those values are or even or reconciling, you know, sort of a pluralistic, you know, value set, and I think one of the biggest challenges or biggest sort of values to reconcile, I think, is egalitarianism and meritocracy. Mm. You know, what is sort of the new social contract? Like how much, you know, are you owed by society just by being, by being alive and being a, being a citizen? And, you know, equality of opportunity is a word that we use a lot, but I wonder if we should use some different word because we can't really agree on what it means. And, and of course, you can, you know, it has implications over like school and education and things like that, but people have different parents and different genes and grow up in different locations. And, and um, you know, how much do we take that into, a, into account? It, 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 these are very hard philosophical. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's, we, we have to guarantee everyone the first two rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Everyone needs to be guaranteed safety and security. And that includes physical security through laws and police, you know, health security through, you know, universal free healthcare and financial security through some mix of a thriving economy and like uh, one where people have opportunity. I mean, I don't, some people are trying to solve this through UBI, which to me feels like if that happens and if that's the answer, I would love, I'd be fantastic. I would be thrilled. I'd be thrilled if like giving everyone a certain amount of money every month can provide people that amount of security. I definitely see that argument. I can also see how that's like, that solution is a product of our age where like the solution in the era of money is to give people money. Like it, it, it makes sense. Um, yeah. So I, I think the social, I think the social contract should be everyone's now me needs are provided for by being a, you know, the, the the greatest gift we give one another is membership. And we could say by being a member of this community, by being a member of this nation state, we guarantee you your, your safety and security. And then what you do on top of that is all on you. Um, but to me that like that speaks to what I think is the truth of the world, um, which is that life is hard if you have those day-to-day struggles um, and that providing people for that is, is something that we could absolutely do. But, you know, it's obviously these things get moved into a, a, a political arena of, of values and meaning, right? And, and we're really experiencing like an interesting values conflict now. Just this week, there was the protest in Lansing, Michigan, of people driving through Lansing, creating traffic to demand the governor reopen the state. 
and here you see this tension where the governor and all, all these governments that are choosing to lock down their countries, they're operating from this like us collective perspective. We must protect us all. And this is the sacrifice we must all make. And some people of the population are revolting, but from an individualistic perspective. Your collectivist uh, mentality is an imposition on my liberty. And so we have this values conflict that looks serious when, or it looks silly when it's like a you know, couple hundred cars in traffic. Um, but it's going to get more and more serious because COVID-19 is showing us this tension between the individual and collective. Climate change is really going to show it. And then we're going to see it on this global scale with China and the U.S., um, with this sort of individualist um, and more collectivist mindset. So I think like that, that tension uh, is, is very present. And I think that might end up being like the core tension of the 21st century uh, because we're going to have a lot of these sort of challenges that aren't necessarily caused by individualism, but certainly can't be solved with it. And giving that up, especially for people in the West, is going to be really hard for some people. It's going to get to that really core value level layer where it's like, even though this might kill me, I would, ra- I would rather die me than live being you know, one of you or whatever that is. So I think that's like, that, that is just going to keep growing. And I think that is going to be a core tension we're going to see in all kinds of parts of life. One way I sort of see it, it's a little bit simplistic, but in the, in the same way that software has, uh, you know, been eating the world, uh, technology has been eating the world. And, and with that sort of uh, a certain type of, you know, capitalist merit, meritocracy, I think we can make it way more meritocratic via some of the things we were talking about. Um, in the same way that's been eating the world, similarly for, for a long period of time as well, uh, on the other side, counteracting that is sort of a, a certain kind of egalitarianism uh, has been eating the world. The negative spin on that would, would be to call it wokeness. The positive spin on it would be to call it human rights, which is basically as time goes on, you know, we, we, we uh, the standards of, of what we expect human rights to be uh, increases as our, as our, as our standard of living gets better, as our, as our lives get better, we start to, you know, expand the scope of, of who is human in the first place uh, of different groups that, that are human uh, or that, or that pretty soon we'll get into non-human groups that deserve r- rights and the best case scenario is that these are two, you know, counteracting forces that create that can create a healthy, you know, balance, a healthy pluralism. The negative spin, it seems, what's happening is it creates chaos <laughs> and um, uh, confusion. <laughs> yeah, all of, all of, I think all of the above are true. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, in writing the book, I and like reading Kuhn and thinking about how um, these like anomalies happen. Um, I started to take like a, a kind of a 30 year timeline to how I thought about change. Uh, all these things I looked up, there was, it's just often this 30 years from something being totally new to being like so popular, it's almost invisible. Like it's just so, it's so embedded in the culture. We can't imagine it. Like it took 30 years for hip hop to go from nothing to like super well-known or gay marriage, 30 years from like a total, un, you know, unthinkable to accepted by most Americans. Um, and in that 30 year process, there's a, there are these raging cultural debates and there, there is this tension and there is this chaos that is absolutely necessary because when you look at it from a distance, you realize like that is the fight that inches things in one direction or another. And that even as it looks like, oh, we're in locked heads, this hopeless battle, that that is that might actually be what progress looks like. 
uh, and that everyone is actually it's doing the right thing that like being conservative about some values is important because there's a probably a pretty good reason why we have a lot of the values we have in place. Being pushing on values to be better is important because without that, we're not going to grow. We're not going to. So I think that there is like a, a play that's happening. Um, but one of the things I, I grew to believe after studying this was that maybe change happens less from people changing their minds and it happens more from people dying. It happens more from who is being asked the question. Um, because when you are born and the norms you grow up, you grow up in just inform so much of how you view the world. There, there's this example I write about in the book about the development of the antiseptic method that Joseph Lister um, created based, you know, building on Edgar Simmelweis and uh, Louis Pasteur. And in so 1865, Joseph Lister created um, the idea of sterilizing instruments before surgery and sterilizing a wound and sealing the wound after the fact. And at the time, uh, mortality rates from surgery were like 80, 90%. Um, so he started doing this and, uh, and his, suddenly his, like his surgeries uh, were successful. You know, Lister was able to treat people using this, using this treatment. Um, but the medical establishment at the time, this is the late 1860s, uh, rejected, uh, rejected um, Lister's ideas. And and there's this great book called Bad Medicine by David Wooten that writes about it. But the, ultimately, the reason why these doctors rejected the ideas is because if what Lister had said was correct, then that meant those doctors were responsible for the deaths of many, many patients. Because Lister was saying what kills patients in surgery is unsterile, unsterile materials. And so these doctors resisted um, Lister's findings because it required a level of like self-confrontation that was just brutal, would be brutal to do. And so the doctors that could accept, that did accept uh, Lister's findings were people who were in medical school, who hadn't yet gone into the practice yet, because they could look at his ideas and they could look at his results and just see them. They could just judge them for what they were rather than feeling personally judged by them. Um, and so here you just had to have this sort of this period of time play out where enough of the old guard had been discredited or had died off. And enough of the new guard had taken their place that literally there's just a point where it's like more than 50% of doctors approve of this and it started to become mainstream. Um, but so even with something like I can improve the mortality rates of surgery by like, you know, 80%, even that it took like 30 years for people to buy into it because there was just a lot of, there's a lot of emotional plaque that every single one of us would have a hard time. Like we all, we all probably have our own versions of that in our lives right now that we don't, we're not aware of yet. Um, but there's just like human shit like that that makes me think these things take time. I think something like COVID and what we're happening now is clearly an accelerant of time. Um, and so maybe that 30 years get, gets compressed in this moment. But there's a lot of fascinating research on 30-year theories of changes, why it happens, even the theory that societies bounce back and forth for 15 years between conservative and progressive areas as they counterbalances, as they counterbalance the excess of each other. So there's a, you know, I, I, I sort of buy into this sort of cadence of, of life that happens, really kind of driven by people being born and people dying and, and sort of what normal is, the, the median line of normal um, shifting as a result. That's a, uh, that's a perfect place to wrap. Uh, my guest has been Yancey Strickler. The book is This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. Yancey, thank you for coming on the program. Hey, thanks so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. 
check us out at villageglobal.vc.